Hello, hello, long time no listen. It's Britt, the Petite Polymath. And today I'm gonna to be talking about the book Intimacies by Katie Kitamura. Uh, get excited. Happy Sunday, everyone. We are over halfway through the year 2022, and that is insane to me. I am just three months away from my half birthday <laughs> uh, because I turn 40 next year, which is crazy. I was talking to an old friend um, from summer camp earlier this week, and we were talking about how we thought 40 was ancient when we were 14, and now here we are. He's a few months older than I am. Uh, so, yeah. It's very surreal. Uh, but regardless, it's been a bit, and I have had lots going on. I also have been reading, even though I have been silent, but I read multiple books at the same time, and I've been reading some nonfiction that was just more contemplative for myself, and it was just taking me longer to get through it. I'm actually not even done with one of the books. Uh, but I'm picking up some fiction again, getting back into that rhythm. And actually, Katie Kitamura is going to be speaking at the Suwannee Book Review in a week or two. And so I decided I'd pick up Intimacies so that I would actually know what was going on in preparation for, for that interview. Uh, I haven't read A Separation, which I think was her first book. But I really enjoyed Intimacies. It was a quick read. I started it maybe on Wednesday. I finished it last night. And uh, the kind of general synopsis is about a interpreter at The Hague, um, at the United Nations like International Court, which is a place where, you know, cases are held that are pretty much like crimes against humanity, um, war crimes, etc. And so this unnamed um, interpreter is kind of between two worlds. I think her father is American, her mother is uh, from Singapore, and as we meet her, her father has died. She's leaving the States, although she grew up kind of moving around the world. So she's really kind of a, um, a nomad. And, uh, you know, she's got this, um, this mixed ethnicity where she doesn't really fit anywhere. She's an only child, so there's no one to anchor her from a sibling standpoint. And so now she's taken this job for change of scenery to kind of figure out what the next step is. What ends up happening, without spoiling, there's not like a ton of what I would say action as much as uh, creating a, a world of language. And this is actually tethered to something I'm going to talk about at the end of this little episode, which is something that I'm paying attention to right now that I'm really enjoying. It's also tethered to something that I've been working through in my own life. I always say if I hadn't been a doctor, I would have been a linguist. I find words to be fascinating. Not just how we speak to each other, but also the idea of cross language and what gets lost in translation. You know, I took six years of Latin, which was really handy for medical school, not so great for speaking. 
And the one regret I have of life is not being bilingual by this point. I have had so many other things vying for my time that it's been hard to ever find the time to just decide to pause in my normal life and do an immersion somewhere or, you know, I don't know, be more intentional about picking a place that I have to speak another language in and practicing, practicing, practicing. Probably because I feel very skilled in my native tongue, it feels very disconcerting and stressful to not know how to convey the same depth of emotion in another language, but you have to get there first. And for most of us, we're learning our native tongue, we are children, and kids are always frustrated by their inability to communicate. Ergo, a lot of the tantrums and emotional outbursts we get from them, which is why we should parent better and give kids space, because it's really frustrating to not get your point across, even though you have big feelings and don't know how to say them. But um, I digress. I would also say that lots of people still, even with language, don't know how to communicate. So then you, you add in someone who has multiple languages they can pull from, and maybe then they're able to access different parts of themselves based on that, which is something that comes up in Jhumpa Lahiri's and other words, which I highly recommend. So this character is figuring herself out. She's got a, you know, a friend uh, that she has um, you know, cultivated a relationship with. She is in a dating relationship with a guy who's in a, it's, it's an, it's an it's complicated scenario that I won't delve into too much. And, um, and she's just kind of figuring out where she fits in the world. And also how her job impacts where she fits in the world. And I think some things that stood out to me was the way that Kitamura uses language in the book. So you have this person who has her foot in two worlds based on her own background. Then you have the fact that she speaks multiple languages and she works as an interpreter in a place that's kind of between all these other places, uh, speaking for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to communicate clearly. Then you have this concept of the, of the international court. There's a little commentary on that. You know, the United Nations is largely uh, a Western phenomenon, and often the countries that get pulled to the court are, uh, you know, countries that are more, what's the word? They are younger in their existence. And so we're talking about maybe countries on the African continent, more so than anything, maybe some in the Middle East uh, that are being um, kind of scrutinized, you know, that their, their leaders are being, uh, you know, accused of, of all sorts of crimes against humanity. Ironically, the West has perpetrated a lot of dysfunction and instability throughout the world, and yet it doesn't seem that our countries are ever held to the same um, rigor and accountability that these other countries are. Not to say that these countries' leaders aren't, you know, doing some hellish, horrible things. They are. 
you know, we're talking ethnic cleansing and um, using, you know, rape as terror and, you know, blowing up things and, um, you know, destroying villages and crops, etc. But they're not the only people who do this and that perpetrate this. And yet they're the ones whose feet are held over the fire. And it's just a very, the double standard is astounding uh, when you really think about it. This is something that I actually want to investigate on my own time and, and learn more about. But one thing that Kitamura does do well is that I felt I was completely immersed in The Hague and this idea of pretense and what's underneath is a very profound part, that things look staid and civilized, but that there's this current of violence underneath. And there's a passage that I wanted to read that kind of shook me. Uh, So here it goes. By daylight, the detention center was less sinister than it had appeared by night, and there was something almost matter-of-fact about its presence on the side of the road. The bus did not stop outside the detention center, and I saw the wall and outline of the building only fleetingly through the window. It was simply another one of those buildings that exist in the landscape in which you live, of which you never take real notice, and whose purpose you never know. There are prisons and far worse all around us. In New York, there was a black site above a bustling food court. The windows darkened and the rooms soundproofed so that the screaming never reached the people sitting below. People eating their sandwiches and sipping their cappuccinos, who had no idea of what was taking place directly above them, no idea of the world in which they were living. But none of us are able to really see the world we are living in, this world, occupying as it does the contradiction between its banality, the squat wall, the detention center, the bus running along its ordinary route, and its extremity, the cell, and the man inside the cell is something that we see only briefly, and then do not see again for a long time, if ever. It is surprisingly easy to forget what you've witnessed, the horrifying image or the voice speaking the unspeakable, in order to exist in the world we must and we do forget. We live in a state of I know, but I do not know. And that hit me in the gut, because I think about this in my job. And, you know, people who uh, have uh, professions where they are faced with either the brutality of other humans to each other or just the, the, the injustice um, of the world, people having the misfortune of their, of their bodies failing them, um, of just tragedy seeming to hit unexpectedly, and people being hit numerous times, you know, back to back to back. When you have professions where you're in proximity to that every day, you have to have something that allows you to separate that out so that you can, I don't know, go to the grocery store or um, get your hair done or if you, you know, hug your child, uh, laugh with your partner um, because it can be so overwhelming. I am, uh, I'm coming up on uh, the anniversary of the death of someone who, um, who had a very large impact on me as a person uh, and who is very well-loved um, and greatly missed. And um, to tie this to something that I've been doing recently, uh, earlier this week I was watching uh, Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. 
And you know, she's an emotions researcher and a lot of her work is in vulnerability. But apparently this book, and it's an HBO Max show as well, is about uh, language being a portal to other realms. And that if we don't have language to express what we feel, we, we can't feel it. And in fact, that what we say we feel actually shapes what we feel, uh, which is quite the chicken or the egg. Uh, the brain is zany like that. And so she goes through 84 uh, lang- well, words for emotion and, and just kind of emphasizes the importance of knowing how to express very precisely what you're feeling, because if you don't, if you overshoot it and you, if you undershoot it, you're not doing yourself any favors. Uh, so one of the words she talks about is anguish and how it's a word we don't use often, um, but that it is the sort of grief that knocks someone to their feet because it's like your body can't even support you anymore. You're so uh, overwrought with, with, um, with heavy emotion. And, um, and of course, everyone has had this experience at least once in their life. Um, it's often connected to, to loss of child for a mother, kind of historically, when we think about it in, in literature and in art. It's usually captured more in the arts than it's captured when people are talking to you. You probably pick up on it when you're watching the news, depending on how heavy the news might be. But uh, it's the same sort of ideas. It's it's how we're able to process what we're feeling. And that if we don't have the words, then we don't actually even know what we're feeling. And then we're even uh, more alienated from ourselves and then therefore alienated from each other. And I was thinking about this in in relationships. Uh, You know, women and men in particular uh, are, are socialized differently in how they process emotion. Our brains and our sex hormones help with that. You know, testosterone and estrogen um, shape brains in ways um, that are complicated. That's a whole other conversation for another day. That's why gender is a little bit more uh, biologically derived than people want to acknowledge. Um, but uh, this idea that, that how your brain integrates your language to your feelings and then socially how we allow people to learn how to do that and nurture that in the world has direct implications to then how we're able to interact with each other. And in this book, you see the ways that language breaks down or how people are, use language to manipulate. It's something I never even thought about. If you have an interpreter, like, you know, the interpreter is the, is the voice of the person trying to communicate something, right? It's like a, an amplifier or, or a speaker. A speaker maybe is the better word, which means it's not supposed to have um, an emotional um, flavor. It's supposed to just be what the words are. And yet, that's a human being who's going to have an emotional response to something. So if you are interpreting at a high court and there are some really like grisly, grotesque things that you have to communicate, how do you do that um, objectively? And then 
how do you also know when something needs to be conveyed in a way that um, requires not embellishment, but, but I don't know, a, uh, another finesse because the languages aren't one-to-one when you translate. That is, that's some really profound work to do. And, and yet I think that in many ways we do this uh, in our own lives. Like language sometimes falls short because we just don't have the words. And so how do we, how do we uh, distill what's happening inside of our own heads to offer to someone else? And I think that's something that takes practice. Um, it's, it's really difficult at times. But I feel um, motivated to really work on practicing that more in my own life. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you happen upon Katie Kitamura's Intimacies, you should totally check it out. So I hope you all have a wonderful week, wonderful rest of the summer. I'll be back with something else I'm reading, I'm sure. And that's that on that. Bye, everyone.